0: Welcome to episode 277 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters.
0: Hey brother. Hey brother. We haven't had one of those good old fashioned episodes where we start out with a little banter where I say something like, How are you doing? And I'm like, "Ah, fine. I'm okay. (laughs) Things are fine. (laughs) I never know what to say when someone says that. It's not particularly good podcasting, which is, I know why we basically moved away from that. So, yeah. yeah. So if we continue with that and do not walk, but run toward moving this along, we're going to be talking about the divine decrees and we're moving and people are tracking with us. All the way through, like these different kind of cumulative heaping up natures of theology, theology proper, and so it makes sense. We talked about this a little bit. Where to go next? And we felt like this would be a great place to go. There's good precedent for it, but it's going to be decree time. It's going to be divine decree time. But before we get to that, let's get back into affirmations and denials. We did a question cast last week, so if anybody missed that, they definitely want to go back and hit that up because it's super great. And we missed affirmations and denials because. Typically we don't do them on those days. So it's true. I, maybe you have now like a reservoir built up of affirmations and denial. So we got to let that loose, let it out. We do. Do so you want me to start? Is that, is
1: that what we're saying?
0: Yeah. I was trying oh. to build up all this excitement and pressure oh. and you're keeping it like really chill. I'm I really appreciate. chill. Like,
1: it's the Lord's you... day. I'm just, I'm just like, just tamp it down. I need you to take <laughs> it down and take just mellow down. down a little bit. <laughs> So my, my affirmation is uh, pretty straightforward. I'm just affirming this podcast called Distilling Theology. So Distilling Theology was part of our relaunch group when we relaunched the Society of Reformed Podcasters uh, a couple years back now, and uh, they took a long hiatus when uh, Blake got married and had some other things going on. But they're back now, and back. it's just such a great show. The um, Blake and Justin are just such genuine, humble guys that are just trying to get after it and think careful thoughts about God and about what God has revealed to us. Um, They don't have any pretenses of being super, you know, technically trained theologians. They're just two guys who really uh, love the Lord and want to talk about him and want to share what they've learned. Um, I recorded an episode with them the other night on the marks of the church. Not sure exactly when that's going to be releasing, but make sure you check it out. It's just a good show. It's just a good show. If you like our show, uh, you're going to, I think you're going to like their show too. It's got a very similar kind of feel to it, but it's definitely different personalities behind that, uh, that feel.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a, this is a great time to jump in and say, you should definitely go to reformpodcasts.com and find all the other podcasts that are living out there. It's true. part of this kind of Reformed Theological Network of podcasts, which I will all personally vouch for because they're all great, all amazing, all a little bit different, and they all have something unique to add. And Distilling Theology is a great one. Plus, like if you're the kind of person that's like, listen, I'd like to know a little bit more about spirits and yes. the spirit, this is the podcast for you. How have how, how the guys, Distilling Theology guys, have you? How have you not used that yet? That seems I like I mean, I don't. I don't want to write all your material, but
1: <laughs> I don't want to tell you what to do with your show. But this is what you should do with your show. But yeah,
0: check it out. It's a lot of
1: fun. It's it's always funny to listen to them talk about. Uh, whatever scotch they're drinking, and then listen to me stammer like an idiot trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about when I'm just like, I taste like scotch. So uh, we had a good time, it was a good discussion. Uh, and the show is great. So check it out either through the mega feed at reformpodcasts.com uh, or through any podcatcher or uh, just go straight to uh, their website. They have a pretty active Facebook community too that you could check out. Um, they, they like to tout out that they're the most sage, stage reformed group online. And I've actually found that to be true. There's something about their group that things just keep really chill. Maybe it's all the vodka and scotch and stuff. But uh, yeah, their group is just really chill. There's not a lot of fighting and and bitterness and fighting and backbiting and fighting in their group. So
0: yeah, check it out. What about you, Jesse? What are you affirming? Well said. Well, I'm going to stay on that theme. Speaking of scotch, I got a scotch I'd like to affirm of a different kind. And that is, I've been enjoying recently, again, a book that is a compliment to Pilgrim's Progress. That I find absolutely delightful and also will just knock you on your butt because it's so amazingly challenging. And it's called Bunyan's Characters in Pilgrim's Progress by Alexander White, W-H-Y-T-E, who was a Scottish theologian. He was a minister and a principal of New College, Edinburgh was the moderator of the General Assembly of the Free Church in Scotland in 1898 and this is basically his he just works through each of the characters but it's not like a cliff notes thing this the thing about this book which makes it so challenging is he goes through and basically unpacks every character gives his own perspective of how it fits within the narrative and the story and the allegory but then basically does like a commentary on the characters themselves and that's where it gets nice. amazing so you know after pilgrim goes through he he hangs out with interpreter he hangs out the house which is like an amazing scene by itself he leaves he finds the three dudes in shackles one of which is is sloth alexander white's whole unpacking of sloth you know you think you know what he's gonna say it's like yeah of course like the christian can even in being saved come to a place of slothfulness where they're not zealous for the things of the lord so you're like okay yeah that's fine and then he's basically like let's talk about important prayer right now what's your prayer (laughs) life like because that's probably where you are the sloth and you're like dang (laughs) <laughs> right on. So it's it's just like an amazing compliment. It's it's not just like a, hey, I'd like somebody to explain to me what's happening in the story. It's ever since I started reading this alongside Pilgrim's Progress, they just seem to fit together so well that it really deepens. It makes the understanding of it, the application of it so much more rich. So really affirming with Bunyan's characters in Pilgrim's Progress by Alexander White. This is like a wicked old book. I'm, I'm not even sure I, mean, I don't have like a physical copy of this. I'd love to have one. I just have a version that I purchased through Kindle. Um, have you heard of this thing before? Like, have I you have not.
1: This? No, I, I've, to my shame, I've never read the Pilgrim's Progress all the way through. I think I've probably read the whole thing in chunks along right. the way, but no, I haven't heard of this. I do know that uh, there was for a long time in, especially in British Christianity, that was re- a really popular thing to do to basically like write commentaries on the Pilgrim's Progress. So there were a lot of different commentaries, some of them good, some of them not so good, um, uh, available. Um, and some of them, (laughs) this is, this is a little quirk of history. Some of them had the entire text of Bunyan's, uh, Pilgrim's Progress in the book. (laughs) Embedded. And it was like, there was like, but there was like (laughs) basically like prerequisite or preliminary, Precursor to so like copyright lawsuits, where people would be like, "You don't, you can't publish uh, the entire book attached to your book and call it your book. You just can't do that." Especially since books, um, often you know, publishers or printers, I should say, would would charge the cost of the book would be related to the the actual like page length of the book. So they would add things to it just to right. increase the page length. So yeah, I haven't heard of that particular one, but I do know there was a fair number of good commentaries and and things like that um, helping to explain. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, and I know at least until recently, and I don't know that it's changed, but I, I do know that at, at least recently, um, Pilgrim's Progress still was the uh, all-time best-selling book in English, second only to the King James Bible. So That's correct. That The, the Pilgrim's Progress has had a, a huge cultural impact on English-speaking Christianity that I think most of us probably don't, uh, don't quite
0: realize. So yeah, sounds yeah.
1: like a good read. If I'm I ever get I around don't... to reading the Pilgrim's Progress all the
0: way through, I'll have to Oh, you love this. It's it's really easy compliment. I I mean, I don't want to fanboy on John Bunyan too much, but I do, like I think we said before, go on record again as saying that I do think this is just undervalued, but it's mainly because you just got to get a good version in in the common language. Because once you start reading it, you'll be like, man, this is like just an epic story. And... You find as you peel back a little bit of what's going on, it just brings you into the gospel so clearly, so tenderly, so profoundly in like different ways. Like his accent points and his access to getting you to understand certain things are just so unlike anything else we're normally used to reading. So Alexander White's commentary is among my favorites. He seems to be right on point. Some would say that Alexander White is like right at the edge, like right on the cusp of like being a Puritan, to which I respond, Easy now, I don't think so. But <laughs> but I, I get that understanding because he he writes in a way that I think is he's close to Bunyan, so he writes in a way where you're almost it's almost as if Bunyan himself is writing this yeah. commentary. But in addition to that, what's fascinating is Alexander White writes from the perspective of Pilgrim's Progress, but interpreting it in light of Bunyan's own autobiographical works. Right. So yeah. you're, you're getting like a massive kind of bringing together of his life and why he wrote this. So. Yeah, I don't want to fanboy on that anymore, but it's definitely, anybody wants to invest time into this, is absolutely worth it. It will definitely pay dividends. Yeah. Well, I'm
1: going to call a little audible because I think we're going to need a little bit of time on my denial. So do you have a denial that you're able to uh, share with us, or do you want to cede your time to the
0: floor? Yes, good sir. I cede my time on the aforementioned denial to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Motion carries, apparently. (laughs) Second. I've been sitting on this one since before our question cast. Um, and I'm denying an article uh, that was published on Crossway's blog. And, and Crossway does this thing where they, they have an author who's either recently published a book or is about to publish a book, write basically like a blog post that's like a distillation of that, that book. And this article is called, Does God Really Feel? And this article is a steaming hot pile of scuba It's just terrible. It's really, really bad. So, I mean, the answer is no, right? The answer is no. God doesn't really feel... (laughs) And and it's just Go a bad on. article. So I, I want to just read this um, this paragraph here. And this I I bring up this denial mostly because this is a contemporary article that's out there. There's a book about to be published by these same authors. But this is a this is an example of this movement in broader evangelicalism. And these guys, the guy who wrote this, graduated from Westminster, so he should know better than this. But it, there's this broader move in evangelicalism that wants to sort of jettison these these classic categories and classic understandings. But what's insidious about this is they jettison these classic categories, but then because they know enough about the classic categories, they sort of paint over the classic categories, uh, this new understanding with classic language. So for example, classically, there's been a distinction um, in some circles between passions and affections. And they, you know, we would say, well, God doesn't have passions, but he does have affections. And in this article, he basically says like, well, yeah, I mean, if, if we're talking about emotions, like passions, like physical passions and like uncontrolled passions, then of course God doesn't have that. But if we're talking about affections, which is what we mean when we say feelings, then of course God has those. It's like, that's not at all, that's Mm -hmm. not at all what we're we're talking about here. So here's this, this uh, paragraph, it says, God cared enough about understanding us that God the Son stepped into our shoes by taking on a human nature— Jesus' flesh and bone are proof that God has established a deep connection to our emotional experience, and he wants us to know about it. In fact, he demonstrates his solidarity with us in particular through Jesus' suffering. Jesus' trials and temptations validate the bond he has with us as our priest, the one who can truly represent us to God in our misery. Jesus really suffered as a flesh and blood human being. He really gets it. So when he tells us that he cares, we can know that he means it. And because he really gets it and experienced suffering without sin, God the Son can faithfully communicate that experience to his Father. Ooh. So there are all sorts of just really terrible things in this paragraph, right? So so uh, all of a sudden the incarnation is about God learning something about us and understanding something about us that he didn't understand. Forget about you know dying for sin and having to become our substitute really it's all about god stepping into our experience and learning about us so that he can truly empathize with us right and then then at the end there like okay he starts to get back a little bit on track yeah like the the the, the incarnation and and death and resurrection is about solidarity with us but not in sort of this like i can understand what you feel right. i can understand what you mean there's a, there's an element of that but that's more for our benefit than it is for god's right we can look to a high priest that we know has suffered the way we are, and it's for our benefit that he know that we know that. Jesus didn't need to do that to understand what our suffering is and to right be able on. to comprehensively address and actually understand our suffering. He don't he doesn't have to experience it to know it and understand it. Right? But now not only is the son taking on flesh in order to know this, but now he's sort of feeding that knowledge to the Father. And I guess the Spirit isn't part of this at all. Right? So that, I mean, this is just a terrible, terrible paragraph. And then um, there's a spot where he kind of like misuses the Kevin Young quote, which is just bad. But then to, some, to conclude the article, um, let me find the quote here. He, he says here, and this is the last paragraph of the, the article, in order to keep a balanced view of God's emotional life, always return to the Trinity as the picture of the divine emotional life. Well, that doesn't sound like social Trinitarianism making God in our image at all. The Father sympathizes with you and sends Christ to take an active role in your life. The Son empathizes with you directly through his human nature, and the Holy Spirit empathizes imminently through his indwelling in you. Well, first of all, the father can't sympathize with us because sympathy means to suffer with. That's literally the right. root. You can't say God God has no passions, which the the authors of this are trying to say, and then say He sympathizes. The the root of path of sympathy is the same root as passions, right? the son empathizes with you directly through his human nature. Okay. I guess we can say that, except that the scripture says he sympathizes with us. I'm not going to hop on the empathy as a sin bandwagon because those guys are crazy, but to, to take a specific verb of sympathize and then change it to empathize, which is not the same thing without any sort of argument as to why you do that. That's not cool. And then the Holy Spirit empathizes imminently. Again, is the Holy Spirit suffering is he pathos does he have a pathos now that he he engages with us in order to understand us so this is this is another example of why theology proper is so important right people 100 years ago 200 years ago the westminster divines the the first generation reformers they were not laboring under some sort of delusion that god somehow had to have feels in order to to be uh, be god with us that, that somehow God had to have the feels in order to understand what, what needed to happen for salvation to uh, to happen or to be a good God and a good father to his people. Nobody really thought that until this sort of therapeutic revolution, maybe in like the last 60 or 70 years, where all of a sudden feelings and emotions and all of that was the central feature of it. So I could get into a whole historical tirade about Schleiermacher and the, the God consciousness and all that stuff, and I'm not going to do that um at least not not a lot but this is just a terrible terrible article and it's a perfect example of why it's important for us to go back to our sources to go back to the Reformed confessions and to go back to the scriptures and understand what it means, what we're talking about when we say classical Christian theism, we don't need to renegotiate or renavigate divine simplicity or divine immutability or divine impassibility. We don't need to redefine terms in order to make it more palatable to the modern mindset. We just need to understand what the Bible teaches and not try to reinvent the wheel for a new modern age of feels.
0: Yeah, that's well said. (sighs) Take a breath. So take a breath for a second and let me maybe put a replacement in there. Instead of reading that article, just go directly to do not pass go or pass go. I How's I, don't I haven't know. played Monopoly in a long time. Do you pass do not.
1: Go? You do not pass go.
0: Do not. When pass you go, go to jail, you do not pass go. Oh, okay. Just go. Whatever it is, I should have brought this up. Just go and read instead, Gentle and Lonely, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dame C. Ortland. Because so I I can see in this article this general evangelicalism, this sensibility to kind of want to bring to the forefront that we have a God who identifies with us, but it's being done at this exclusion of what is good, like Christ-centered, actual like traditional orthodoxy. So it's just best to kind of avoid that. And I think something like gentle and lowly where... Because the idea in this article, right, is to kind of recapture like a biblical vision for like the heart of Christ. But like you said, there's this sense now where we put this real heavy premium on authenticity of expression as manifested in genuine emotion right? and the ability to have genuine emotion, to express it and to actually share it with somebody. And this is just outside of our understanding of God. It's also like very man-centered, right, to have that kind of sense that like, well... There is God with us, and the scriptures do say that, so I must really try to emphasize that God with us is also God being able to identify with me in this way that somehow makes him less of who he actually is in his character, more of who I actually am. And of course, that is, in some ways, bring God down to us. Yeah. So, it's just not helpful. I think something like... um, like gentle and lowly is way is way better. Not not to mention, this is a quick aside, but because people have been tracking with us for a while, will appreciate this. I just happened to look up gentle and lowly on Goodreads, and uh, one of the first one of the first reviews that pops up is the venerable Chad Bird. So even the <laughs> Lutherans, <laughs> even the Lutherans are all over it. this. Even the Lutherans get it, and he rated five stars. So people, you nice. know, it must be something of use. If uh, even our brother Chad Bird is all over it. Not even. Yeah. He's a great guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, if you're not going to read Gentle and Lowly, uh, which I would, I haven't read it, but I've heard it's it's really good, um, actually read the article that they're referencing from Kevin DeYoung because he actually explains it right and they misuse his quote. So here's the quote that they take from him to support their thesis. It's He says, this is Kevin DeYoung quoted by these guys. If we are... Excuse me. If we are equating emotions with the old sense of passions, then God doesn't have emotions. But if we are talking about affections, he does. God's emotions are cognitive affections involving his construal of a situation. Most of what we call emotion in God is his evaluation of what is happening about or with his creation. So right what de is saying, right and I, I've read the article, I, it was actually an address. I've listened to the address that this comes from. What de is saying is that when the scripture says that God looks at something and he's pleased... It's not describing anything about God. What it's doing is it's describing God's evaluation of the thing he's looking at. So it's when we think I'm pleased with something, we think of this internal welling up of emotions, this internal sense of satisfaction that we have, right? Or if we're angry, it's this internal sense of dissatisfaction, and that's been Sort of given to us by the stimulus, whatever it might be. The the coffee on my table is good, and so I am pleased with it as a response to that. You know, there's a cause and effect going on. What happens with God is He looks at something, He says, "That's good," and and the other language that's used is, "This pleases me." When God is pleased, it's simply another to, way to say that He has evaluated X situation or X thing, and and has assessed that it is in accord with goodness, right? Right. Or if he's displeased, it's out of accord with goodness. It's either uh, compatible with his nature and therefore he is pleased by it, or it's incompatible with his nature and therefore he's displeased by it. But that's not a statement about something that happens in God. That's a statement about the thing itself. So that's, that's really important to remember is all of this stuff that we've been talking about with um, Accommodate in language and divine simplicity and immutability. All of these things play into this. And for those people out there who might think, "Well, this really isn't a big deal," I don't understand why they're making such a big deal about this divine simplicity thing or this divine immutability thing. I don't get this. I don't get why this classical Christian theism thing is something that Jesse and Tony had to spend six episodes on. An article like this, which is being published by Crossway, which is one of the most prolific. Uh, popular level Christian publishers in uh, reformed evangelicalism or reformed-ish evangelicalism, this article, this is why we have to talk about it for five or six episodes, because it's out there, it's pernicious. If you're not already understanding, you haven't already listened to what Kevin DeYoung said about this, you'd very easily look at this and be like, yeah, Kevin DeYoung's a solid guy. He's got sound doctrine. He supports this. That is not the case. It's not the case at all. So I, I don't want to belabor the point, and this does tie into our episode. So we'll probably talk about it some does. of this stuff. Some of this stuff as we talk about the divine decrees. Um, but we we have to make sure that we are on our guard because something like this gets in your head, and you start to think in these categories, and that changes what you actually believe. We like to think that what we believe drives what we think and what we say. But in reality, it's the other direction. If you speak in a certain way for too long or you think about something in a certain way for too long, it changes what you believe. And that's dangerous. When we have this kind of stuff coming at us and we're reading it, we look at it, we go, both of these guys graduated from Westminster with MDivs. They should be pretty theologically sound. You don't graduate from Westminster and not have a basically reformed confessional position. Well, apparently you do. Although I I should also say that for a long time, Scott Oliphant was teaching more or less that God takes on new properties and Westminster was letting him. Uh, That's been rectified recently, but you have to understand there's no institution in the United States, seminary or otherwise, that should be above criticism and above evaluation. Just because it says Westminster on the side of the building, or just because it says reformed on the side of the building, does not mean that it does not need to be compared to Of course, first and foremost, the scriptures, but but as a secondary, more distilled version of of what the scriptures teach, the, the Reformed Confessions. There's not a single Westminster divine that would look at what this guy says in this article and be okay with the name Westminster being attached to it in any fashion. So we just have to keep our guard up
0: and be thinking about these things constantly. And all of that you've just said is actually not that bad an introduction into the topic of today's podcast, because as I mentioned at the top, we're talking about divine decrees and here's why we placed it in this particular spot because the consideration of the divine decrees naturally follows that of divine attributes because the decree decrees, I want to say degrees because we were just talking about Westminster, the decrees regulate the operation of the attributes. So in other words, God's acts agree with God's determination. So that's why, for instance, as we begin this topic today, The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question seven defines the decrees of God to be his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And I love those words. In fact, on our shared calendar, Tony, when you were setting up this episode, I love it. That's what you put on there. It's like the divine decrees whatsoever comes to pass because like that is like a wonderful encapsulation. That is some of the language we've thrown around this idea to help us understand it and to internalize it and to remember it. So God does not act until he has decided to act and his decision is free and voluntary. So the actions of God can no more be separated from the decrees of God than the actions of a man can be separated from his decision. So seems altogether appropriate that now we start to jump into what are the divine decrees in general? And of course, there's a lot we can say here and we're just kind of like opening up the door. We're just like pulling it open and kind of peeking in because there's a lot of things we're going to talk about, but this is where we start.
1: Yeah. So so the divine decrees, this is another thing that I think sometimes people get wrong, right? They think that um, d- the divine decrees is simply another way to talk about God's eternal will. And if we yes. do that, we run into all sorts of problems, right? Because if, if God's will is not distinct from his person or his, yes. his persons or his nature, right? Which we affirm because of divine simplicity that God's will is not a different thing than God's omniscience or his omnipotence. It's hard for us to think about what that means, but God's will is fundamental to his nature, which means his will does not change. His will is immutable. It's who he is. He he could not will otherwise because that comes from his nature. So we, we look at that and there's this thing called the problem of the modal collapse where we think, well, if God's will was to create and his will cannot change, then creation becomes necessary. Well, right. the divine decrees function almost like um, almost like a converter for that right because that, that I think that argument holds some weight although there are lots of answers and responses um, for the, the modal collapse argument. I'm not, I'm not competent to get into those philosophical questions or to answer those but there are responses out there. but the divine decrees are kind of the first ad extra act of God. Right? So God God at intra is who God is. He wills what God wills. He his love for one person to the other is his nature. So so when the Father loves the son, that's not an, a volitional act of will. It's an operation of nature. Right. right. So that's that's where you get language from like Augustine where he says like the love that the father has for the son is the holy spirit. What he's really saying is like the love the father has for the son is the divine nature. That's that's the relationship between the two. That's the bond between the two. It's not some voluntary act of love towards the son. It's it's the very divine nature itself that is what is the love. Well, the divine decrees are the first ad extra operation of God. And so therefore they're free acts, right? He freely decrees whatsoever comes to pass, but he also immutably decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Right. But we should not and we cannot confuse the divine will for the divine decree. Because if we do, then the 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 um the modal argument actually is true, right? If God's will and his decree are the same thing, then creation is just a logical outcome of the divine nature. Making right. making the the Uh, creation in some sense, part of the divine nature, like an emanation of the divine nature. And that's not Christian theology. That's panentheism or pantheism. That is not Christian theology. Where it does get tricky, and we have to acknowledge the mystery in this, is that if the divine will, wills what it wills, then it also decrees what it's going to decree.
0: Right? right, so we exactly. we
1: have to we have to understand that we again are butting up against challenges with languages, understanding what it means for there to be sort of a, I don't want to say sequence, but but a. a hypothetical moment, it's, we're not talking about temporal moments, but a hypothetical moment where God has decreed nothing. And then a subsequent hypothetical moment where God has decreed everything. We we can't really understand what that even means. Um, So we have to acknowledge that, but the way that Christian theology has helped to avoid this modal collapse and helped to do this distinction. And this goes back to what we were talking about, who God is and what God does are different things. They're distinct from each other. One logically and necessarily feeds into the other, but they cannot be considered the same thing. And so in, in this case, the divine will simply is what God is. The divine decrees are something that God does external to himself. And and in, in most systems, they're the first external act that God does. So that's why it is, it is, as Jesse said, it's a logical progression in our series to go from talking about who God is, Holy Trinity, and then to... You know, we we sort of took a pit stop in scripture in there, but to to go from... The theology proper and, and the doctrine of the Trinity to now talking about the divine decrees is because that really is the first act that God does externally. So I think I think that this is the right way to go, and this happens to be the same the same route that the Westminster Confession takes. So we're <laughs> we got good precedent going on. Um, but th- there are other ways to arrange your theological system, right? When we did a, when we did our very first systematic theology series, we went from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we did the doctrine of Christ and the Doctor of the Holy Spirit, because we right. wanted to just sort of cover all of the divine persons in one spot, and then we moved on to, well, now what do the divine persons do? So it, there's nothing wrong with doing it that direction, but in this case, uh, because the issues we're facing in our world right now, in terms of theological error, are so rooted in theology proper and the, a failure to distinguish between what God is and what God does, uh, this really was the right direction to go.
0: Right. So I'm going to confess it just did a time check. We're in about like 30 minutes. And I knew, of course, that we were going to relate where we're going to where we've been and why we're going here. I honestly thought you just came in so hot. I thought we were going to get to that point, this idea of like God's opera add extra transitive acts being like separate from the decrees, like at like minute 50. So like we're already like well ahead. But like, the, I, I think that's good. Like, we're just going to do it up front. And like, because I was anticipating this because here's what I was going to say. Like, I'll just make the joke now, which was I think this is like, our weekly like EFS roast and denial right. section here because here's where it comes to roost and where it's like actually important. Yeah. Is we need to understand everything you just said. Like we need to think about what that actually means for how we speak about God. Because what we're saying is like these decrees, it does not include those eminent activities which occur within the essence and result in the three Trinitarian distinctions. I think we've been really clear on that, but just to like reemphasize it again. So this part of divine activity is excluded from the divine decree because it is necessary. It's not optional. So God the Father did not decree the eternal generation of the Son, nor did the Father and the Son decree like the spiration of the Holy Spirit. The triune God could no more decide after the counsel of his own will to be triune than he could decide in the same manner to be omnipotent or omniscient. So the divine decree, because of all of that stuff, comprehends only those events that occur in time. So God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass in space and in time, and that which comes to pass in the eternity of the uncreated essence forms no part of the contents of God's decree and that is, again, com- brings us back right into like the kind of, like I said, this way is going to trigger some people, like the cesspool of like the EFS stuff. Right. Yeah. So like th- we really can't, I think maybe some people think like we're always trying to find how to roast EFS in every conversation that we have.
1: It's not but, hard to do.
0: No, except, well, there's, oh man, we need like that drum, like ba-bum-tsh. like we need yeah. that sound effect. I mean, I wasn't even
1: making a joke, but if it was funny, then I'll take it. (laughs) I mean, the reason it's not hard to do is because when you... I mean, just like this article, right? If you... You know I don't actually know where this story came from, and I don't know how legit it is, but it's one of those stories that you hear in like a thousand sermon illustrations that the people who are are working on counterfeit money, they don't train to identify counterfeits. they just know the real thing so well that they it can is tell true. the difference. It is true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose you work in banks, so you would you would probably know you probably like have had conversations with people about this. <laughs> The reality is like, that's, that's why it's so easy for, and that this isn't to be puffed up about our own knowledge. We stand on the shoulder, shoulders of giants, of both course. historically, as well yes. as like in the immediate past, um, yes. Adonis Vidu was instrumental in me understanding divine simplicity. For example, Michael Horton was instrumental in me understanding various aspects of the Trinity. So, so this isn't to say anything about my skills or Jesse's skills or anything like that but the fact is that when you have a good understanding of the the th- historic ecumenical classic doctrine of theology proper this other stuff just uh, it just smells it just doesn't pass the sniff test and right. so talking about something as incidental as god is not his decrees even that is so it's so obvious when you actually think about it it's so manifestly obvious that what god is is different than what god does even something that first level already runs afoul of the, the EFS guys, which is why, which is why someone like me, who isn't, I don't have a PhD, right? I don't have a doctorate. I've never published a book, but this is why I have the audacity, which people have said I get a little weird about this, but I have the audacity to say that Wayne Grudem's not a very good systematic theologian because these are first level, first order things that should not be that difficult to comprehend. But because he's not done the work in it, he misses these things. Owen oh, Strahan could be the same thing. James White's a bit of an anomaly because he he was up until about maybe a year and a half ago pretty solid on a lot of this stuff, and he just sort of out of nowhere I don't know what happened but he sort of slipped off the rails on some of this stuff and started questioning confessional doctrines that had never really been on his radar before. But this is why we keep on coming back to it, not because we are harboring some sort of grudge or because we can't get past right. this topic, but because just talking about good theology continually brings us back to look at the stuff that's out there and see how bad it is in comparison.
0: Right. Maybe another way of saying it is like when we, when we talk about orthodoxy, when we talk about the kind of traditional, christian theology what we find is it keeps drawing battle lines even if we don't intend to against these very things and so it just draws them out and i think here is one the divine decrees you're going to find and i bring that up only because you were like let's just do this right now let's get into like (laughs) transitive acts like right off the top which i think is is fine but like maybe let's back up a little bit let's talk then about like these the characteristics of the decrees of god and we can speak generally because of course there are many particulars here, and so we often speak of the divine decrees in plural, though in reality, of course, there's really only a single decree, right. and it covers all the works of God in creation and redemption, and it also embraces the actions of men, not excluding their sinful deeds. So while it's usually, you know, we kind of think of it in this, we, we talk about it with like all these little nuances, of course, what we're trying to say at the end of the day is that, I was going to say in the final analysis, but now that I know again <laughs> that that's That's RC Scroll. I didn't know that. Uh, At the end of the day, what's another way we can say that? Give me another. I always say in
1: the final analysis. When, okay. when it all comes down to, I don't know.
0: You can here's, say it. People,
1: people like well, RC Sproul. It's fine.
0: No, no, it's no, it's great. I love RC Sproul too. But here's the thing. Now, ever since you made me aware of that, <laughs> I actually heard two podcasts this week from him, and he said it in both of them. And Every I was like, single oh, time, yeah. I was like, there you go. Now, and I never noticed it before. I just thought he was summarizing or transitioning. Now I know, like, that's his jam. Like there that. Is. Did he copyright that? Is it like. R.C. Sproul TM, like,
1: I hope not. Cause in the we, final analysis, we owe somebody a lot of money if, <laughs> if he did.
0: Ligonier hit us up. Okay. Yeah. So please so don't just say uh, there, there is nuance here. We tend to speak in general right. terms and in plural terms, but of course we're really referring to the fact that uh, all of God is in all of God and the decree is singular in that nature. So right. let's talk about though, what it means. If I were to say to you, like give, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. Um, you can pick one, you can pick a bunch what are some characteristics of the decree? When you think of it, like at the top, and you're explaining yeah. to somebody, how do yeah, you, do you mean, start? Yeah, I mean,
1: th- I think the big thing that is—maybe may- I'll approach it this way. The thing that most people get wrong is that it's comprehensive, right? Mm. So so okay. it's very common. Scott Clark, uh, strangely in an episode on prayer, uh, went on to a long sort of side talk on a recent episode of the Heidel, uh, Heidelcast about how the way that we talk about— um, our will and God's will and and these kinds of things, how it actually places us on the same level as God. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember when I would, you know, I think this was my first year of seminary. I had a friend from uh, college who had graduated with a Bible degree along with me, and she had married a nice guy who was a worship pastor. And he had got hired at a school or at a church uh, kind of near the coast here, uh, just north of Boston. And she was so sure that this was God's will. She had been wanting to find a good evangelical seminary to go to and just wasn't having any luck in their area. So the fact that God seemed to be bringing them to a place where they were right next to Gordon Conwell, um, you know, her and I were pretty close friends. So it was nice that she knew someone at the school. She was so sure that this was God's will. I won't get into all the details, but through a, a course of events that were not um, not outside of this person's control, not outside of her husband's control, he was terminated like a week after he started the job there. And and so she was sure, she was absolutely sure that being at this church and going to Gordon Conwell was God's will, and somehow they right. had screwed it all up. They, they, had, they had messed it all up, and now basically they didn't have they couldn't be in God's will. There was no way until somehow God kind of like worked all things together for good that were somewhere down the road. They were going to be back in God's will after a lot of hard work and a lot of prayer. Well, that's not an uncommon view in, in evangelicalism. Um, even among the reformed, sometimes there are people that will talk about a man, I'm really in the center of God's will on this one. I just really, and what they mean is like, (laughs) I feel like things are going the way that I want them to, and things are kind of falling into line. That's kind of what they mean but even to talk about like the center, I'm in the center of God's will, as though there's anywhere else that you can be. So I think for, for me, and that's kind of why when I put this on our calendar and what the episode title is going to be, is I'm emphasizing whatsoever comes to pass, right? Right. God, God and you, you said this, God uh, ordains according to the counsel of his will for his own glory, Yes. whatsoever comes to pass. And this is it in the confessional, uh, in that question answer in the confession, but it's certainly part of the theology. That does not exclude the sinful acts of humans. So yes. it's not as though God decrees, you know, the, the broad outlines of things. And we kind of like fill in the gaps. It's not like God is the director in a play and he gave us stage stage notes and we kind of fill in our own characteristics and our own, our own emphasis on the lines. That's the other way that a lot of people look at us it. like, well, God, you know, like God, 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 uh, ordains the big picture and like, we work within that big picture. And so like the big events in history, those are going to happen, but like the little nitty-gritty like whether I eat you know Cheerios for breakfast or shredded wheat like God doesn't ordain that. Well, actually he does. And right. and even just a basic look at at certain things can show you I had this argument um, it was funny. I was coming back from a mission trip to Mexico and I was having this argument with someone on on the plane that I was sitting with who's on the same trip. And we were talking about Whether or not God ever um, ordains or decrees. A, uh, a divorce. And I, I don't want to get into all the ethics of divorce. I'm sure that somewhere in our future catalog, we'll have a conversation about sexual ethics and marriage and that stuff. But his position was God never ever decrees divorce. He never ever ordains divorce. Anytime that someone gets divorced, it is, it is a violation of God's will. God had nothing to do with it. He didn't even know it was coming. He was kind of on this very open theist kick. And I said, Well, what about our friend? We'll call this person Jacob. Uh, What about our friend Jacob, whose parents um, are a result of a second marriage? And so if, if there was no divorce, Jacob would never have existed. And he's like, yeah, I don't follow you. And I was like, well, the Bible says that God knew Jacob in his mother's womb. Not Jacob, like Jacob the patriarch, <laughs> Jacob. But knew this it's hypothetical, awesome. right? This hypothetical Jacob in his mother wo- mother's womb, and this was a guy who was very much was like, "For I know the plans that I have for you," right. declares the Lord. Right? He was so into that kind of like, "God's got a God's got a rosy future for me." I said, "Did God know the plans that He had for Jacob in advance, or did those plans only come into existence when Jacob was born or when Jacob was conceived?" And he's like, "Well, no, God knew that from eternity past. God doesn't learn new things; He doesn't know new knowledge." And I was like, "So how could?" God have known this person's future and planned this person's future and intended for this person to come to be without also actually intending this divorce to happen. And he didn't have an answer. And the answer is he did intend that divorce to happen. Now, there's, right. some, there's a lot of different ways for us to reconcile and talk about how it is that God uh, can ordain sin, but not be culpable for sin. We did an, a series a while back, uh, I think we called it Free to Believe, that touches right. on this. We also talked about had a Divine Providence episode that touches on this. But the, the decree of God is comprehensive, there is not anything that has happened or ever will happen in history that is not something that God's decree uh, encompasses. Right? There's nothing that takes God by surprise. There's nothing that happens that God wished didn't happen. There's right. nothing that 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 takes place that God did not intend. In eternity past. And this is part of why all of this garbage about eva- about like affections being somehow related to emotions and God right. steps into our suffering and He's sim- all this garbage in this article, it totally um, it totally glosses over the fact that each and every single thing that is in our suffering, I'm doing air quotes for suffering. I don't know why suffering's a real thing. Anything that's in our suffering, (laughs) God ordained in eternity past for his own glory, according to the wise counsel of his own will. So, So this idea that he would react to it in any sense or be changed by it or be moved by it. Um, or have an affection toward it that is not simply an evaluative statement, a declarative statement of its purpose and its function, totally just ignores the fact that he ordained it, he planned it, he accomplished it, and he caused it to be. And so we have to, when we talk about the decree, we do have to sort of like start off on that basic level, because even though I think for most of the people who've been listening to our show, especially if you've been listening for more than maybe five or 10 episodes, this is not a new statement for you. This isn't something that is going to come as a shock to you. But a lot of people in our broader reformed-ish circles don't think this way. When we say that God passes over the reprobate, they really think that what it means is like God just doesn't realize that they're reprobates, right? right? He, he, that, that's an, a totally passive... Uh, event that God simply does nothing in reference to them well that's not what that means because he did plan their life he knew and intended for them to be born for them to to persist in their sin and then to punish them for his own glory like that's not outside of God's decree it's not outside of his eternal first first mover causation um, and it's important for us to sort of land that before we go any further into discussion about the divine decree or decrees. Right. So
0: let's let's wrap a couple, I think, helpful summary statements around what you just said, because you impact a lot of stuff. And you let me know if this kind of suits what you just said. I'd say the first thing is, some of what you expressed is, I would say the decree of God is founded in wisdom. So, of course, like we don't always understand that wisdom, but it was formed in the depths of eternity, and therefore it's eternal in the strictest sense of the word. That's you know basically Paul writing to the church in Ephesians 3. But even with that, it is unconditional, so its execution doesn't depend on any action of man, but even renders such action certain, so like, and that's also something that you said. So I think you hold those two things not in juxtaposition, but again bringing them together and understanding that there's like a fully orb nature of what we're talking about when you say the decree. In addition to that, also you said it's, or I'm reading into what you said, I guess it's effectual, so that everything that is included in it is certainly comes to pass. So the plan of God is also it's unchangeable. So because He is faithful and true, He is going to bring to pass everything which He says and He has ordained. And then the last thing, which you've also said really well, is it's all-inclusive. So embracing the good and the wicked actions of men, contingent events, right? Like the duration of a man's life, like where we live, but with respect to sin, it's permissive. So here we have this ability to also say that God is, in fact, decreeing all these things, but is not the cause of sin itself. And even hearing you say all those things, here's some irony is we kind of started in the denial talking about how... I think the intent of the article in some ways was to make us feel warm and fuzzy about how much God loves us because he knows us, because he's intimately involved with us, because he understands us. And yet what we find here is a better reason to see all those things and depreciate them in orthodoxy, which is if God is decreeing, planning, knowing, foreordaining all things, then that is a kind of intimate knowledge that is way better than some kind of like face level, like superficial, like trying to identify by way of emotion. Here we find something that's far deeper, that's far more connected, definitely far loving and far more invested. And that is the decree, while some would say, because I think some will take issue with what you said, and you're not wrong about how God is basically foreordaining some toward punishment not in this kind of double predestination type of way, but in the sense that, of course, by him planning and knowing, there is like some complicit nature there in right. the sense that there is something that is purposeful and volitional. Right. And so how can any of that be loving or glorifying? It's exactly because that exists that there is the sense of glorification of God, especially for all of those whom he has redeemed and he has not passed over Because again, there's nothing here in the decree that we are owed. It is God in his pure volition that he does all this stuff. And we have to like preserve, preserve is the wrong word, because I think that implies that we have to do something to make sure that this continues to take place. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's recognition that God has this right from the very beginning and that it happens outside of time and space that from eternity past, all of this was set into place. So there's wisdom in this it's effectual, it's unconditional. What else do I say? It's all inclusive. Like, is that, are we getting to the center? Because yeah. I think well, yeah, he, for you sure. really talked about a lot and, of that stuff.
1: And maybe just to touch on the the wisdom element of this too is, you know, when we talk about something, an action that we take or a position that we hold as being wise, right. we, <laughs> we're talking about our actions or our thoughts or our positions being compared to some sort of external standard, right? Yes. When we talk about God Doing something according to the counsel of his will, we're not saying that God looked at all the options. We're not Molinists, right? We're not saying that God set up all the possibilities and he picked the one that he thought was best, right? And he's just good at it. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that God is the principle of wisdom, right? So when God does something according to the counsel of his own will, the wise counsel of his own will, he's not looking at some set of circumstances. And assessing the best outcome according to some some standard, he's right. acting in a way that is utterly consistent with his own nature. And so again, we have to be careful because if we push too far into that and we insist on teasing that out and making that uh, you know univocal language where we mean the same thing about him acting to his according to his nature as we do when we say we act according to our nature, then we end up with the modal collapse and we don't want to go right. there we're talking analogically, we're talking in accommodated ways. And it's a, another way to think about it that I think is helpful is when you think about God's love versus human love, right? When I love something, that is a reaction, right? It's it's a reaction or a recognition to something that is worthy of love in whatever my ob, whatever the object is, right? If if I read Bavink and I say, man, I love this book, it's because there's some sort of Uh, desirable quality that my attention has been set upon that has elicited feelings or or a cognitive response of love, however you want to frame that. When God loves something, it's because he has set his intention upon that, and his intention of love is what changes that thing into a good object. Right. So it's a totally different perspective on love. And I think it's, it bears some similarities to wisdom. God right doesn't on. look at something. And this, this skin it goes back to the conversation about this bad article. God does not look at something and have emotions of love or emotions of pleasure well up within it. He sets his affections cognitively on something. And those affections actually transform that thing into what it is that God loves. So he looks on creation, like the creation's a perfect example. He, he creates and he looks upon it and he says that it's good. Well, we shouldn't be looking at that and, and interpreting that, that phrasing in the Genesis 1 account as though somehow God looks at it and evaluates it and it wasn't like, didn't already know it was good. Right. He's looking at it and it's not so much an evaluation of that, that created thing. It's, it's a statement of the, the efficacy of his work. It's a statement of saying my craftsmanship is good because I am good and I cannot fail. So, So when we talk about God doing something or decreeing something according to his wisdom, what we're saying is that he is the measurement of wisdom. He's the ontological grounding and the standard of wisdom. And so, of course, he acts according to that, right? He elected me out of the mercy of his own wisdom. Somehow, electing me is in accord with his will. I, I, or is in accord with his nature, not because right. of me, not because I'm so good that God was forced to do it. It's not like God looked at at me or at Jesse and went, "Man, that guy, he's so good. He's so good. He's going to be so good, so good at theology. Looking. He's gonna he's going to be so good at finance. I just have to have him." Right? <laughs> that's not that's not how it works. And this is this is part of the confessional theology that we're we're trying to advocate for here, right? So chapter three is the section on God's eternal decrees uh, chapter, uh, section one is more or less the answer to the the Westminster uh, Catechism question Jesse read and um, section two says although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions right that's free right. knowledge or natural knowledge God God knows all of the things he could do even the things that he is not going to do he knows all the things he could do yet, Hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions? So he's not saying, he's not saying, well, I'm looking forward in time and this guy would choose to believe me, so I'm going to pick him. That's not how it works. He's not looking forward in time and going, man, that sunset on February 7th of 2022, that's going to be a really good sunset. So I'm going to be pleased with that. That's not what it's saying. He's saying that sunset comes about. In whatever way it does, because somehow that is an expression that is consistent with God's nature. That is a creation that is consistent with God's nature. So when we say he acts according to the counsel of his own wisdom or the counsel of his own will, which again, divine simplicity, it's the same thing. He acts according to, this is where it all comes back. He acts according to the... Uh, The wisdom of his own nature, the counsel of his own will. He acts according to his own self. He acts as God at all times. And so, for every, therefore, everything he decrees and actually accomplishes must be consistent with him being God because he acts as God. That is something that's different for humans. And this is why divine simplicity is important, because I can act in ways that's not consistent with my own nature, with my own desires. I can act in ways that are contrary to what my nature would normally express, right? I can choose to hurt myself. That's not in accord with a normal human nature. It's in accord with a disordered human nature. And it's because we're composite beings and fallible that we can do things that are not in a real core ontological sense, a violation of our nature, but in an, in an ethical violation of our nature. It is an ethical violation of the human nature to harm yourself, right? Uh, I I can't I can do that. I can't fly. I can't hold my breath for th- breath for 30 minutes or anything like that. But I can do things that are in violation of the moral or ethical nature of what it means to be human. God cannot do that, and that's that's why the d- divine decrees are important to emphasize. All the things that Jesse has said, the list he said, they're according to God's wisdom slash nature, which is the same thing. They are comprehensive. They don't exclude any element of human action or any element of human uh, of created uh, effects. All created right. effects are, are, have as their first cause God. All created effects have as their first cause God, and He causes those things to unfold according to secondary causation. But He's still the first cause of all things. So, I mean, we we could we could probably deep dive into this even more and continue to sort of loop on this. It's a it's a really really deep topic. We're going to come back to some of the particulars in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about. You know, election and reprobation, how that how that functions specifically. Why we're not double, you know, double predestinations in a symmetrical way, but double predestination in an asymmetrical way. So it's not the first time we've talked about it, but we're going to talk about it again. We're going to talk about the the order of the divine decrees. Um, There'll probably be some other episodes that we haven't quite planned yet that will come up as we we kind of approach these topics.
0: Yeah, that's right. That was well said. Basically, here's what I feel like you just did is. We were like, hey, let's go take a look at this super amazing house, which we call like the Divine Decrees. And let's go take a look at all the rooms. You just ran down the hallway and opened up all the doors. I did. And we're like, all right. So now we're done, though, for today. That's the rest of the tour. Just look at the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so we're going to come back to this. I think you gave like a most amazing teaser. And so at, because we don't have five or six hours left in this episode, but merely five or six minutes, let's let's shut it down. And we're we're going to continue to come back to this. And so I hope that people will continue to get excited about it. We'll look at some of the roosters we talked about. We'll think about this a little bit more, get pumped up and psyched for next week, no matter what day it is that you're listening to this. And in the meantime, I want to give a particular shout out to Brother Brandon, who, this is going to sound stalkerish, but we know something about Brother Brandon, and that is that he recently purchased an amazing looking, if I don't say so myself, Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood mug on the Reform Brotherhood store. I know he's going to be super happy to drink his coffee or other hot beverage in this big handled, beautiful mug that has my face and yours in a cartoon fashion emblazoned on the front. And if for some reason you'd like to also partake of something like that and support the podcast and also get some fun swag, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com There'll be a little link in the center of the page that says join the brotherhood. There's seven different ways you can join in. One of those ways, in fact, it's number six, is you can go visit. We have a little bit of a merch store and there's some fun things that we have out there. So if you're interested, you'd like to get something that supports the podcast and show your solidarity while at the same time, some of those uh, some of those funds come back to us so that we can use them to continue to make sure that this is free and available to everybody. You can go do that. There's seven different ways and that's just one of them.
1: Yes, and I, I heard on good authority, since that authority is me, that <laughs> we're going to be adding some new merch to the merch store too. So uh, if you've looked at it and nothing there tickles your fancy, then make sure you keep checking back because the, we're getting some new designs and some new, uh, new products on there. And I wanted to also say another way you can join the Brotherhood is to check out our contest for the month. We give away something every month, usually a book of some sort. Uh, and this month we are giving away a copy of a book that was recently published by Crossway, which we just... Spent an extensive amount of time <laughs> slamming one of their authors, but this guy's actually solid. Uh, the book is called Be Thou My Vision, yes. and it is a 31-day liturgical guide provided structure for daily worship. And so here's, here's how you know that this is good, right? Scott Clark, Scott Clark, everybody, <laughs> like exclusive psalmody, no instruments, Scott Clark has said that this is a good handy guide to have for um, home worship use. So um, I'm I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to use it in my own devotions. Uh, each day has – it sounds like we got like a deal from Crossway or something. They didn't give us anything for this. No, we didn't. Um, but yeah. each day there's a call to worship. There's uh, topics about adoration and confession of sin, assurance of pardon. There's a section from the creeds and catechism, and then Boom. there's a kind of a closing doxology as well. Uh, it's I, I hear it's really phenomenal. I've heard really good things. And Jonathan Gibson is a just a rock solid confessional guy. Um, he you know he was the editor of the um, uh, what's it called. Uh, heaven. He came and sought her from heaven. He came and sought her, which was the kind of the first major length, um, kind of edited volume on, um, particular atonement. And it, I think oh, for yeah, me, it just right. really, that really changed my perspective. It really helped me understand it. Um, he was also, I believe a part of the team that put out that reformation worship, book a few oh, years back. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah. So he's a good guy. He's he's invested in liturgical research. He's well-researched. Um, and like I said, if Scott Clark is saying this is a good Reginald. thing to use, if my Reginald man. is saying you, you can even sing these songs in here that aren't psalms, <laughs> I, I almost fell off my seat when I heard him say that. I don't know what's <laughs> happening there, but uh, I like it. I like everything about it. But we're going to give away a copy of this book, so you can go to uh, reformedbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformedbrotherhood.com slash 277. Uh, That contest will be live through the end of February of 2022, and then we will select a uh, a winner and email you to get all your details and get that sent out to you. All
0: right. Well, I think that does it, Tony. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood.